individual or an organization, major donors help KPFT in many ways. Major donors help big station projects and ensure KPFT gets the money it needs to survive without all those pledge drives. Just call our development director at 713-526-4000 to become a major donor today. Your donation of $5,000 or more helps keep independent arts, music, news, and views alive and kicking on the Gulf Coast. Become a KPFT major donor today. Call our development director at 713-526-4000 to join KPFT's major donor program. KPFT is indispensable, but we need you to keep our blood pumping. This is KPFT Houston, Texas. My name is Roberto Lovato. I'm author of Unforgetting, from which I'll be reading the following passage. I'm sitting at my favorite table at Cafe La Boheme on 24th near Mission with my laptop in front of me, attempting to stitch together the disparate pieces of my origins as I write this book. The varnished oak tabletop sits on the base of an antique sewing machine. Its 12 by 10 inch iron treadle and the iron gears, gears it powers still in place. Even though there's no longer a sewing machine above, the pedal moves the metal beast lying below most customers' awareness. Its black latticed elegance and noisy rotations remind me of bouncing on the lap of Mama Pei, the Salvadoran seamstress whose machina de coser fueled her family's 3,000 mile journey to San Francisco. Pushing the, metal, the pedal slowly, I start typing. The pin attached to the pedal of the sewing machinery below pushes and pulls the treadle wheel. To the annoyance of the techie sitting next to me, it squeaks every few revolutions, but still, the wheel turns. Up and down, up and down, up and down. The one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four motion of my foot working the treadle hypnotizes me. Next to the wheel, in the center of the space below the table, sits the machine's wrought iron logo. Slightly rusty silver and faded black laurels garnishing the Art Deco letters spelling the Singer Manufacturing Company. Coming here is a ritual of mine. Something about coming to the neighborhood of my birth to write atop an old Singer sewing machine in a cafe named for the romantic opera La Boheme makes it easier to recover the fragments of my childhood and adolescent memories, especially ones, the ones that are more often than not painful to conjure. I look out the window and up the street towards Horseman, my old junior high school, and I remember the shame, confusion, and molten anger I felt as a kid. I always had some sense somewhere deep within me that Pop's secrets, his family history and upbringing, had something to do with his emotional absence and his violent temperament, even as it inspired his magic and charisma. Yet I lacked the history and therefore the context to understand him. Like many Salvadorans, skeletons lying scattered and unstoried all over the southwestern part of the North American continent, Pop's memories, which might have assuaged my own nihilistic rage by helping me understand and address its source, were lost for decades. Today, the plight of the many Mara kids I've met fits the travels downward theory of violence that I developed when I started going to Berkeley, a theory I came up with thanks in no small part to Pop. This downward momentum is created by the silence of both victims and perpetrators of violence, keeping us stuck in those moments, enabling the same cycles to play out in time and time again. My search for my own unknown past is one reason I was so enthralled by the Instituto de Medicina Legal, the forensic lab in El Salvador, a vault of so many untold violent stories. Watching their rituals of forensic recovery led me to believe that unforgetting is a critical way to start the process of individual, familial, and national healing. The power to reconstruct the bones of a person and return them to the family haunted by the disappearance of their loved one enables a critical step towards healing. It's the knowing that their loved one is dead and how he or she died that allows these families to conduct burial rites and mourn. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. 
tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. Happy Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month. You are tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say as we organize an event in every Houston City Council District to demonstrate that every district is Latino. Even if you don't live in this part of the country, please take this template and apply it to where you live because our art history, and culture should be evident, respected, and extolled throughout. This also means adding these issues to every single platform. Of course, we've been bringing this for years. Today on the radio program, we have two excellent interviews. The first is with author Roberto Lovato, whose work you heard at the top of the program. We're talking about his memoir, Unforgetting. You'll hear another reading later. We've got a full-length interview with him, and he's also part of our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month festivities for City Council J, which has a huge Central American population. This is in tandem with our Nuestra Palabra community representative for... District J, Sandra Rodriguez, in conjunction with Maria Duran from the Central American Collective. This includes a pop-up exhibit of Central American artists. In addition, we're going to have Roberto Lovato speaking at that event as well, all in conjunction with Teach Central America. This is what we're about. You're used to it for 23 years. We're happy to take it to the next level with this new campaign. You'll also talk to Maria Segari, who is the Houston Community Representative for District A on behalf of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. She has an excellent event lined up there. I'll be hosting it with her. Also, Houston City Council Representative Amy Peck who's been really supportive. We appreciate her support. Additionally, another co-host will be City Council Representative Dave Robeson, who speaks Spanish brilliantly. He'll be presenting poetry in Spanish, and we'll be focusing on poets in Spanish representing different countries. Really wonderful event. And again, each Houston City Council District will be a little bit different. You can go to get the full website at nuestrapalabra.org. The events will air on Facebook Live. So make sure to like our Facebook page to get those notifications or follow us on Twitter at NP Airwaves. Thank you so much. This is Tony Diaz. Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is Tony Diaz, and we are welcoming back to the airwaves. I wish it was in person as we've hung out with him before. I wish it was here in Houston, where he's come many a time to hang out, as well as to help us with different uh, civil rights issues. It is our dear friend, desde Califas, Roberto Lovato. Roberto, welcome back a tu casa, Mano. Um, as always, honored and happy to be with you again, Tony. What's Hello, right? Houston. We are so happy to celebrate your new book, Unforgetting, 
a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, which has been really, really receiving fantastic accolades, as it should. More than anything, it's great to see someone from our community succeed at a high level. But, Mano, this book is, is beautiful. It's tough. You reveal a lot. You're vulnerable. You're tough. You, I think you're creating a new genre. Um, did you set <laughs> did you set out to break all those boundaries, or is it just the way the muse has attacked you? Well, I didn't. I didn't set out to break any boundaries of genre or anything like that. I mean, for me, Unforgetting was primarily about just getting a story that I've been sitting on for a long time, and you know, I. Uh, it's in, and, and eventually I started realizing it was this underworld journey into all these different kinds of underworlds that I've explored over 30 years, right? Whether it's, you know, the underworld of the gangs that I, I met with from the very lowest level to the very top of the killing chain of 70,000 members. Or the underworld of the FMLN guerrilleros, uh, which I became a part of. And I'm a U.S.-born citizen, by the way. I'm not from El Salvador. And so I made a decision to join uh, the urban commandos of the FMLN. And this is one of the under underworlds because I've never talked about it in public until Unforgetting, right? And, you know, there's the underworlds of my family history and the secrets of my father. Like, there's an astonishing secret at the heart of the book that I don't want to reveal here as much as I love you, Tony. But, you know, <laughs> I got I to gotta keep some things... It's secreto and clandestine for readers to kind of discover for themselves because they'll get my point of the book, you know, because, um, and so there's the underworld of our psychology, the underworld of undocumented people that I was with in like these immigrant prisons just south of, uh, I mean, um, just south of San Antonio in Carnes, for example. I visited one of those immigrant prisons where, you know, unlike those ridiculous and racist images of Central American migrants, in these cages and prisons, there's a lot of activity to try to free themselves going on. So I, I was with some undocumented migrants who um, had a, recently arrived and were already planning a protest against the Obama administration for, you know, separating their children, creating awful conditions where, you know, the mothers, some of the mothers that I visited had, you know, had slashed their wrists to try to escape uh, by suicide. And some of the kids try to hang themselves. Really horrific stuff. And so, you know, I feel like, you know, we live at a time where we have to go into the underworld. Because if you don't go into the underworld, you're going to get Donald Trump. So that's why I wrote Unforgetting, really, to, as kind of a blueprint for navigating extreme and epically extreme times like what we're living now. We opened the show with you reading an excerpt from the book. And what I want our listeners to take away is how beautiful the language is. You've got such potent imagery and there's so many nuances. Even when you use the word revolutions <laughs> in this book, it can mean so many things. And just as you said, when people think underground, it means so many different aspects. Tell us a little about your training as a writer, because this is a poet's voice, this is a journalist's voice, but it also works as this arc of a bigger book as well. Well, thank you, Tony. I mean, the, my 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 beginnings in writing are well, first reading the Bible. I read the Bible from page from beginning to end as a kid because I was, my mom made me feel guilty that I didn't do my first communion, right? I, I was the one member of my family, and I have a big family that didn't do la primera comunión. So my mom was, hey, ¿por qué no hace la primera comunión? I'm like, oh, mom, you know, I'm not into that. But I was trying to compensate for it by reading the Bible, and I did. I read more than anybody in my family. And Jesus was my superhero. He would, you know, he went into the harrowing of hell. He went into the underground to face down the devils and everything. And I thought that was so cool as a kid. And so there's always been this element of kind of delving deep in my commit, in my commitment to, to reading and then to writing. And so, um, you know, then I, you know, then I, know I visit my family in El Salvador and my first exposures really to poetry were my cousins digging out, my cousin Avilio digging out a, um, 
from under an almond tree, this bag that he had, and the bag had all this cassette tapes with revolutionary music and uh, cassettes and, 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 and literature and, and, and revolutionary pamphlets and pieces of poetry from a guy named Roque Dalton, who was a guerrillero poet. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm here, so I've never, unlike here in the United States, I never learned to separate politics from poetry, literature from from labor and action. You know, I've always, and, and there's this whole poet warrior tradition that I was just, it fired my imagination as I started learning about it, especially like when I went to Berkeley and encountered these, um, you know, these right-wing poets like Leonard Nathan who made me, force me to, to hate poetry because it was all dead white men who had nothing to say <laughs> about our reality. And then I took classes, you know, then I met June Jordan and June Jordan, a brilliant epic poet herself, introduced us to all kinds of different poetry and she brought up Roque Valton and legitimated what Leonard Nathan made prohibited. It was prohibited. And so, um, you know, there's that whole uh, oppositional sensibility that informs my commitment to writing. And I, you know, I, I, I've, I've kind of self-taught mostly as a writer. I just, I read a lot. I think that's a necessary thing for any writer. Like, but in the lead up to Unforgetting, I, um, you know, I, I eventually decided to get an MFA. Mostly so that, you know, I had, I mean, I like to teach, so I wanted to teach in universities. But I also learned a few things about craft, one of which was this braided narrative structure, which where I go from three different time periods in every section. So at any given moment, in any section, you're going to be in the present day, which is 2015, and then uh, the 1970s to 2000, and then in the early 1930s. And I weave the three together in a braid, kind of like my abuelita, right, who was a seamstress. And I draw a parallel to that because that's the way the memory is actually is, right? Our memory isn't linear and, 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 and progressive. It's, it's cyclical and, and it can't be predicted. And it jumps back and forth like a chapulín. So, you know, like my, so that's why I, I chose a braided structure, but also because there's, there's a, I don't use the word much, but there's a lot of, you know, kind of implicit stuff about trauma. You know, a lot of writers write about trauma, so I, I do it without saying the word, but I show it not just in what I say, but also in the way I say it, in the structure, and so that the reader can kind of come to the conclusions that I reached. When I reached, for example, you know, the big the writer challenge for me was how do I get the reader to experience even a little bit of what I experienced when my dad Bob, dropped the atom bomb of, of emotion in my life on me on, in the year 2000 with his astonishing secret. And I, I guarantee you it's astonishing. Okay. And so, you know, how do I help the reader have that experience? Something like that. So the braided narrative allowed me to jump back and forth to climax at that moment when boom, there it is. This is explaining your life, dude. And I love too, that you bring that sensibility at the same time, some of our classic writers, but you are always of community. So this may seem like a tangent, but it, in honor of the format you use and the life you lead, I do want to bring up that you are telling our story authentically. And the last time I got to hang out with you was right before the COVID-19 shutdown as the country was debating whether or not to close. And it was a big writing conference and you were there also luchando for Dignidad Literaria because you were standing up to a moment where the capitalistic machine tries to impose a story on us. I think not only are you telling our story, you're telling it our way. You've mentioned politics and writing go together. Is it politics, writing, aesthetics, and community activism? Do you see all that in the DNA of your work? I, I, I can't say that, but I, I aspire to that. I mean, my example were people like June Jordan or Roque Dalton. They were people of the word and people of action, what I call poet warriors. Part of my mission in the world right now is to uh, excavate the lost history of the poet warrior tradition of America Latina. 
you know? It's a, I think at a time like what we're living right now with, you know, fascism on the rise, with um, Donald Trump, with neoliberal decline of the global economy, and, you know, rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, suffering. And then even if we take, you know, COVID-19 and all that other stuff down, then we've got to deal with the epic challenge of human history, which is climate change. And so to deal with that in a serious way, I am trying to, in word and in deed, be a manifestation of the poet warrior tradition that I think we're going to need because we're not going to liberal, progressive, or democratic party our way out of this epic system of crises that we're facing. We're going to need something that sociologists and historians call millenarian sensibility. You know, which means, you know, you're really just committed to something in a deep and transcendent way like I was and many of us, thousands, hundreds of thousands of us were in the revolutionary movement where, you know, Revolución o Muerte. I didn't just say that because I was looking at some poster, right? I said it because I put my line on the line as an urban commando because of my beliefs and because I was sick of seeing atrocities committed against children that like those killed at El Mosote where 1,000 children, I didn't see it, but I saw the remains later on of the people of El Mosote, the 1,000 peasants, half of whom were children, half of whom were under age 12, half of those were under age 6. So after, you know, experiencing war and its awfulness, but also experiencing the antidote to the awfulness, which was the beauty and the sublime and the powerful of the poet warrior tradition that I call it, I realized, you know, in the process of writing Unforgetting, I'm carrying something that's going to be useful to the human race as we face these epic challenges in our lives. And that's what I try to write in this book. That's powerful, and I think it very much comes through. Also, your commitment comes through. So we're very happy that you are going to be part of our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month campaign. Of course, great to have you on the radio show. You'll also be joining us for an event on Friday, October 9th, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. We're doing it in conjunction with City Council J, which is a largely Central American community. And we have our community representative for City Council J, Sandra Rodriguez, We'll also be working with the Central American Collective, but we're so happy that you'll form part of it by sharing your book, Unforgetting, A Memoir of Family, Migration, Gangs, and Revolution in the Americas, because that's the other thing you bring to the table. You really are telling a very Central American story, a very Salvadoran story. Why is, why is that so important? Well, uh, for first and foremost, it's important because my family's from El Salvador. I'm Salvadoran. I'm Central American. This is the first book, and I encourage your audience, wherever they're from, but especially Central Americans, to join us at the uh, at the event you're organizing next month because it's this is the first book by and a non first nonfiction book written by and about Central Americans in the English language, and it's published by one of the big five publishing houses, in this case HarperCollins. So. It's become a small event in certain segments of my community already. I mean, I'm getting all these Facebook posts and Twitter, Twitter, uh, you know, posts uh, of pictures. People buying not just one, but three, even five copies of the book and sharing them with their families because this isn't just our life in El Salvador. This is our life here in the United States, in San Francisco, in L.A., in Texas. There's a chapter in Texas. So, I mean, I, I'm not trying to tell everybody, so I'm telling my story, but if you're, if you're at all successful as a writer, you're going to tell a, a story that has universal appeal, not just for all Central Americans, but for people generally that read and, and are concerned about the issues of our time. And again, most importantly for me, I'm giving people, after 30 years of being, you know, a journalist, author, and revolutionary, I'm giving my very best in this book that I know uh, is going to help me navigate these kind of increasingly apocalyptic times. And I don't use that word lightly because 
you know, I've seen uh, parts of the apocalypse in, in, in terms of the, the material, real manifestation on the ground that, for example, has theologians. I spoke with a theologian, Anasaya Poitier Young, who wrote this incredible book called Empire Against Apocalypse Against Empire. And her theory is that what we call the apocalyptic literature uh, that brought us the term apocalyptic um, was born under conditions of what we call state terror. And so when, um, you know, when, when Ms. Poitier Young was trying to understand what state terror was about, she went to two countries. One of them was Argentina during the Dirty War, where thousands of people were killed. And another one was this little country where tens of thousands of people were killed, 85% of whom were killed by their own government, El Salvador. And so then when, I, when she tells me this, I'm like, whoa, I know more about apocalypse that I read about as a kid than I thought. Hmm. Wow. You know, and it was, it was sad at the same time. It made me feel profoundly sad. And, you know, in addition just to the profound sadness you inherit in a country that has this, like, epic history of, of violence that I document, not just in the war, the gangs, or during the war that I witnessed, but to this period of the early 1930s when El Salvador is home to what scholars at Oxford told me is arguably the single most violent moment in modern and possibly world history. Wow. La Matanza of 1932, when tens of thousands of people were killed in a matter of two weeks, basically. Most of them, um, you know, and, 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 and they were killed. It's the most violent in terms of the numbers of people killed in such a short period of time in such a concentrated small space. And so I'll just say that my family's secrets have something to do with that, as do those of many Salvadorans, 75% of whom don't even know what that La Matanza happened so it's like being Jewish and not knowing about the Holocaust. You have this feeling of what the poet Roque Dalton calls being mita, medio muerto, half dead. And so my my book is any if anything is not any is anything is is uh, is my book unforgetting is a, a story of the, my journey from being half dead in my ignorance to more fully alive in my consciousness. On that note. Will you close this out with an excerpt? Uh, what I'm going to read is a section from a chapter in which I uh, am in a clandestine hideout of uh, the gangs, the, uh, the, 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 the Salvadoran gangs, the Maras. And I'm meeting with Santiago, one of the top leaders of not just the 18th Street gang that he was in the leadership of, but also MS-13 because they had a political coalition that was um, established, and he was one of the maybe top five leaders of the whole structure of 70,000 gang members. I'm meeting with him in this very scary place. My name is Roberto Lovato. I'm the author of Unforgetting, from which I'll be reading a passage from right now. Now that the same government that was pursued by Escuadrones de la Muerte is also using them, calling them Batallones de Limpieza, Santiago fires back, what community are they cleansing? And what is the media saying? They're not saying shootouts between police and gangs. They're cleansing us. I agree, Santiago. The way the media is reporting the situation is, embarrass is an embarrassment to me as a journalist. That's why I'm here, to give you a chance to speak for yourself. He sits in silence for a moment, seemingly pondering what I've said. Our small agreement about big media may help improve the dynamics of our conversation. They're talking about how police eliminate gang members, he says. Why are they using this language? Look up the etymology of eliminar in the dictionary of the Real Academia Española, the ultimate authority of the Spanish language. It means to expel or to throw out. Why are the government and the media using that language? Because they're preparing something. Someone is injecting something into the mind of the population so that they're not alarmed when what they're planning happens. And what do you think they're preparing? More violence and killing. Santiago's political sophistication isn't surprising. 
Many gang members share this sophistication. Their local and national operations, building communications and other networks, arming themselves, defending territory, managing finances, negotiating political space, demand organizational and political acumen. What's shocking to me is his sophistication about language. Dude reads the Real Academia Española. On the table, I notice the book again, a translation of one of the Hunger Games novels. I feel on edge, and my mouth is suddenly dry. His, re his reaction to the ARENA and FMLN questions caught me off guard. On top of that, I need to establish some rapport to be able to get him to respond to my harder questions, like why the gangs recruit and depend on kids. I saw the first movie, I say, still trying to steer the conversation to calmer waters. I liked it. Santiago's eyebrows rise, so do the corners of his mouth to reveal his smile. Yes, the gold teeth are back. I saw the movies, but I prefer the books, he says. You get a deeper sense of Katniss from the books. You like reading, eh? The need to navigate the conversation to the delicate issue of children he and the Mara depend on for their work without causing him to shut down completely is stressing me out. I know the meeting will likely end soon. All during my childhood, I grew up without electricity, he says in the velvety voice voice that's so salvadoreño. My kids won't live through that. Santiago is a father of two who, like all gang members, interviewed for my news stories lives a great contradiction. He does all he can to protect his children from violence while living a life in which violence, including violence against children and performed by children, provides him with camaraderie, extortion, money, territorial control, and other forms of power. My main escape was books. I read them by candlelight, he says. When I got older, a gang elder told me, read. So I buy and read a lot of books. The level of reading reminds me of another kid, one who, before becoming a pandillero, dreamed of using his reading and education to escape the cycle of poverty in the Mesones, shantytowns, pop. My father, the poor kid whose love of words led him to read voraciously despite never getting more than a second grade education. It also reminds me of my childhood persona, Mr. Peabody, the guy who loved books so much he and Freddie Weinstein began their lives of crime by stealing the entire set of Danny Dunn adventure series from the Mission Library. Thanks for tuning in. This is Tony Diaz, and today we are focusing on our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month campaign. With us is... Maria Sagari, and she is the Nuestra Palabra Community Representative for City Council A. We wanted to touch bases with her, ask her a little bit about her trajectory, and find out what she has planned for us. So first of all, hey, how are you? Great to meet, Great to have you on the air for the first time with Nuestra Palabra. Yes, Danny. Thank you, everybody. And uh, I'm honored to be here, actually. I'm, I'm excited about the projects that you have going on. And uh, thank you for inviting me. By all means, and it's fantastic that we can team up. I want to let folks know that you were born in the state of Mexico, Mexico, in a family of indigenous Mahawa farmers who migrated to the city of Taluca, Mexico to start a business. And I love that you're an accountant, so you're a very high-level accountant, but you also, <laughs> <laughs> you also love words uh, you love the whole idea of rhetoric. You've studied rhetoric, debate, as well as mathematics, and you've competed <laughs> in all types of contests that require language and numbers. And you've also been recognized for your work. You received the annual Star Award for Student of the Year from Houston Community College. And you graduated from Houston Community College with an associate's degree of science and then later from the University of Houston downtown with a bachelor's degree in science and majoring in accounting and business. You are fully bilingual in English and Spanish, and you're a senior-level tax accountant with 10 years of practice. So you're just your typical Latina accountant poet, right? 
exactly an accountant poet which <laughs> is a mix uh, it's a uh, it's a real mix i know because most people are oh you're an accountant and they're like boring right and the other side <laughs> but i'm like hey it's not, it's not that boring <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's uh, i guess that poet poetry is my my soft side you know and i i'm not i don't know how good i am because uh you know, we all have different styles, right? I think I'm just an amateur, and I write from my heart. And but I, I like it. I find it very therapeutic. I would say, like, I, I, I relax when I write, so I love it. And, and I've been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Break, break it down a little bit. So, at what age do you start pursuing science and math? And was there always a love of language in there? Or was it always a competition for your time, or did it just kind of happen that you wound up appreciating both? Well, you know, I was raised in Mexico, and my culture back in Mexico is very interesting because my grandparents were fully indigenous. So my grandfather actually didn't even speak Spanish completely, right? He They spoke that language um, in the area, which is a dialect. So... Uh, their culture is very different from the culture that we know right now as like a Mexican culture, right? Because what we see from Mexico right now is most like the the city life, you know. But this is something different. This this is uh this is pure indigenous. So they have different values. They value life in a different way. So they're they're very in touch with the nature and uh, just simple things, you know, like they would do poetry about water or animals. You know? So that's where I come from, and I appreciate those things. Uh, obviously, I growing up in, a, in an indigenous family, we would go to the pyramids, and just we would see life in a different way. So I think that's where my love for poetry was born, because I see, I see simple things as, as something valuable. So that's what I write about, mostly. I love that because instead of us asking, hey, how do you do both? It sounds like you grew up thinking, hey, why don't you do both? <laughs> that it just naturally <laughs> goes together. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And then when you first came, did you did you come to Houston first or did you live somewhere else first? No, I've been here in Houston the whole time. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything else but Houston. Mm-hmm. Great, because... and I I like it, and it's uh, when I will go to the old town, of the old side of Houston, you know, like Magnolia, Barrio Magnolia, and that. Mm-hmm. It's it feels in a way like the the Mexico I grew up in. It's it's cultural, and it's becoming more and more cultural. So I really like that, and I know how here it's more appreciated that. You know, where you come from, and that's where you are, you know. You don't come here to try to be somebody else. You just come here to enhance it. So that's what I did. I, I started writing about my, my background and how, you know, because in Mexico, we have this feeling still of the conquista, you know, mm-hmm. when the Spanish came. And, and and for us, it's very, for me, it's very personal because my parents were still indigenous. So for them to go to the city was a whole cultural shock. And I lived through that, and my my grandmother would tell me stories about that, and so I could see how they they actually live fully the full experience of how the you know like the European culture came in and make them change. So that's what I write about mostly. Mm-hmm. That's potent. What I also admire about you is that you have been giving back to the community. You're an active volunteer for Baker Ripley House in their Taxpayer Support Center. You're a founding member of the group Poetas Houston. You're a founding mm-hmm. member of the group Hispanic Talent, Inspiring Latino Awards, and also the educational group Multicultural Training Institute. And now you are the community representative for Nuestra Palabra in City Council A. Is that also a big part of your upbringing to, to study, to succeed, but to keep giving back? Well, I, I don't think we grow up isolated. I think we should all grow as a community because ultimately what other people do is going to impact me and impact my kids. So when I when I go up in the in the world, I want to bring everybody with me. So I think giving back to the community is a huge part of being successful or making your life. So 
that's why I try to volunteer as much as I can because it's my compromise, right? If I if I learn something, I have to make it useful for those who don't know. And taxes is a huge deal. <laughs> a lot of our Latino, no, for real. I, I've, I've found it very interesting, but also extremely useful because people don't know the law and they get in all kinds of trouble just for not knowing. No, mm-hmm. that's deep. And, and I think to lead a full life, we need all those different capacities, which I love you're bringing that vision to our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month campaign. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you are helping mm-hmm. us organize the festivities for City Council A, which are set to take place on Wednesday, September 30th from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Also, we've just confirmed the location near Pitner road of the spring branch community center out there probably the boys club gym but you're bringing some fantastic poets que van a presentar mm-hmm. en español and then also we'll have some examples of guatemalan cultura break down the the information about those poets that will be sharing their work yeah, well, the reason uh, we started this uh, small group, and I say started, but we haven't even had formal meetings uh, because of COVID, uh, it's because I met this uh, this young man who's a watermelon, and he's having a hard time publishing books and because he has to work, and, you know, it's the life of an immigrant, you know? You come here to work, you have to work. And he has very, um, very little time to write, and he's really good. So I said, well, are you exposing your, your work? And then he said, I don't. I just keep it to myself, right? I was like, well, that has to change, you know? Like, we have to get together, and other people have to hear your poetry, and we, must, we, we should all help each other. So that led to a bigger pool of people in the same situation, and that's how we, we decided to create something, just to give them a little boost on exposure. And these poets are immigrants. They don't speak English. Well, and if they do, it's, it's limited. Uh, and that's how we started. And because of I do uh, accounting, I have uh, access to a lot of people. And I know their stories and all that. So I was able to find people that's interested in arts and culture and poet, poetry. And that's how I invited people really fast. Everybody say, yes, I want to be part of it. And they're very excited and willing to, to be part. That's exciting because I think, especially with Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having mm-hmm. their say, we mm-hmm. were following kind of a pattern that led us to focus on different centers and for example at one point we had started at chapultepec restaurant and then it grew big and we're doing these big conferences at the georgia brown convention center and then a lot Mm -hmm. of our work focused at talento building with the houston and mecca because those are big stages but the Mm -hmm. issue is that our cultura is everywhere so right now we're talking about city council a which most folks don't imagine as a Latino district. It's over 50% Latino, and that's exactly what we're talking wow. about. <laughs> talking about right now. I didn't know that, and I've been living here for a <laughs> <laughs> Well, Exactly, because we, we all kind of think about traditionally City Council H and City Council I, and those are over 70% Latino, but mm-hmm. every single City Council district <laughs> is Latino, which makes it a challenge if we just focus on one part. But then also, like you said, if we don't help each other, we can't reach everybody. So this is a really yeah. fun way to to get involved and to remind folks we are organizing 16 events, one in every Houston City Council District. We've got Nuestra Palabra community representatives for every single geographic district as well as at large. I want to say that City Council Representative Amy Peck has been very supportive. We're looking forward to working with her for this. We are talking about different aspects as well. And then on Mm -hmm. top of it, it's going to be right near Pittner Road. So we want to thank the Spring Branch Community Center for helping us out with this. Appreciate you working with us. Appreciate Daniel Sines who helped reach out to to start those connections. But is this what you hope happens in your neighborhood as well as for all of our community members? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see, like I said, I, I'm, I make friends very easily and I always 
asking questions and they tell me the whole story. So the, a lot of them feel isolated where I live, right? Because it's not too many of us. Now you're saying it's 50% of us. Oh, well, maybe I need to go on. I'm not going out and out. <laughs> I only see what I've seen in my neighborhood is that uh, even when you see the meat markets, you know there's people buying there, right? like uh, Michoacanas and all these uh, other meat markets, Latino meat markets. So I'm like, hey, wait a minute. There's like one here, one here, one here. So there is, I know, I, there's probably, now that I'm thinking, probably 50% of us in this area are Latino. I, I think it's fascinating too because for different reasons, sometimes our community fades into the background or because people aren't expecting us, they don't, you know, imagine us or we are just all kind of falling in our own particular patterns so we don't cross paths. Art is a great mm -hmm. way to disrupt that. And I think you're used to doing it because you're like numbers, people, poetry, cool. I like it. <laughs> I love it. And, and I think the other part too is that this will become an annual event, but between now and 2021, mm -hmm. we can keep working together to develop new tactics. I'd like our listeners to understand that we've touched on several different layers of cultura that typically don't cross paths because you mentioned not just the, okay, so you have Chicano, you have Mexican American, you've got Texas Mexican, <laughs> you've got uh -huh. Mexico, but even in Mexico, you talked about the indigenous side. Tell us a little more about that because I think even Mexican-Americans who want to know more about their history and culture, we don't really understand how deep the indigenous roots are in Mexico. Well, it's it's really big. You know, I grew up in the state of Mexico, which is um, it's basically the, uh, Mexico City. It will be the same as Mexico City and Conroe. Conroe, Huntsville, and all that, those areas up north. So Mexico City will be Houston, and I grew up in, in Huntsville, you know. So I'm close, but I'm not that close, right? So in those areas outside is where there is a lot of people that's indigenous still. And, okay, so, and then the Mexican culture in Mexico is like you're either Creole, which is indigenous and Spanish, and you completely forgot about your indigenous roots, or you're indigenous. So I, I grew up in the culture that is mostly indigenous. We follow every aspect of growing up like that, which is, uh, you know, the, your annual festivities and you behave in certain way. For example, let me tell you this one. <laughs> like, in my small town, in my culture, we don't speak loud. We find that really rude. So we, we oh, speak really wow. sexy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even, even here when, when I... When I met my husband, he's like, nobody understands you. I was like, well, they don't understand me. I'm speaking English. He's like, but you speak really softly. They don't hear you. I was like, oh, that's it, right? And it's true because we find rude to speak up. So if you go to these places, people, even, I don't know if you've seen the movies, they call it their mouth to speak. Wow. Because the, the softer it is, the, the more respectful it is for you. And they even bow down like... You know, like uh, like Japanese do. They bow down to you and they speak very softly. And sometimes they don't even look at your, at your face. And those are the things that indigenous people from Masawa culture, that's what they do. That's I don't know if you ever watched this movie, La India Maria. Yes. Okay, she's Masawa. So my grandmother had outfits like that. My aunts still have outfits like that. And that's part of... Uh, that's part of that culture. And most of them are uh, farmers, so they, they grow corn or uh, potatoes or they have sheep, and that's that's how they survive. A lot of them don't even wear shoes until this day, and, you know, they, they don't. They just, it's just part of the culture. It's not that they don't have money for shoes. They don't like shoes. So that was, uh, that was part of growing up there, and it was... There's no more over there for them, but they're still discriminated and people look down at them and because they're not, they don't understand the main culture, the main stream culture. And they don't want to be part of it either. So it creates like two different worlds. And it's beautiful that we can bring that perspective to the table. But I, again, I want to stress that we're talking about so many different layers 
because then you add nationalities. You mentioned Guatemala, so there's a whole other profound background there. And then language. So you, we talk, We mentioned Spanish, but now you've got Spanish de Mexico, de Guatemala, and then each of those countries has its own rich literary tradition. I would, I'm bringing this up just to point out to folks, that's why it is so hard to, to, to bring in all these beautiful voices, but it's also super important that we attend to that as well. So I appreciate you bringing that to the Ultimate mm -hmm. Hispanic Heritage Month festivities. And so what are some of the types of works or can you name some of the writers that we can look forward to enjoying in, in uh, on the date is Wednesday, September 30th, 6 to mm -hmm. 7.30 p.m. We're going to have the full lineup all the addresses and times at nuestapalabra.org and that's 16 events and it really runs runs all the stages are you going to read some of your work uh i will i will i was told i'm, I'm a little nervous because i was told one time i sent one of my poems to this contest and obviously this this contest most of the contests in spanish are not from the u.s they're either spain or argentina or um, Mexico, so they don't understand exactly how the culture it is, you know, to grow here in the U.S. and then how you see, how your perspective is from here to looking down to Central America and, and South America, right? We have a different mindset. So, I, I mean, anyways, I made a poem and I got this response that said, your poem is really dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, she used a word that I had to research because I what is that? But she said, uh, what is it? Jocelyn said, basically, she said my, my poem was spooky and dark. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, that, I was like, whatever, that's her opinion, right? But hey, believe it or not, I thought about it the whole week. I was like, oh my god, why would she say that? Why would she say that? And then next time somebody asked me for a poem, I had to explain them first. I actually made a whole paragraph to say, hey, you might find my poem a little dark, <laughs> but it's because there isn't this. And the reason why I write like that is because uh, our culture, our Masawa culture, and Masawa is a descendant culture from the Aztec culture. So, you know, the Aztecs believe in sacrifice and the dead, you know, the day of the dead and all that. So we don't see death as something bad. For for us, dead is something good because you're transcending. So, but whenever I write in my poetry about death, I'm I'm writing about death from that perspective, not in a bad way as oh you're dead you're done. It's more like you're transcending. So I had to explain all that before sending my poem. Like you still want to read it? <laughs> <laughs> Here, I, as I'm warning you, you might find it dark. <laughs> the guy was like, yeah, I understand, I get it. So. Well, and yeah, he's here. Like, yeah, it's a little dark, but it's, it's fine. You're talking our listeners into liking it because that's exactly up there. <laughs> <laughs> up there. <laughs> but just yet another example of how all these cultural differences come to a fore. But hey, we get it, especially here in the U.S., where your mainstream publishing world doesn't get any of our experience. They don't understand any of it. So it, it's great mm -hmm. to hear how we can commiserate, laugh at it but keep creating and then spread all of this. I want to let folks know too that there will be an open mic component. Of course, there will be a limited live event there at Spring Branch. It's the Boys and Girls Club there at the Spring Branch Center right off Pittner Road. And that's going to be following all the Center for Disease Control's guidelines. Again, super controlled. We're going to make sure that people are wearing masks. We're going to do social distancing. Uh, very, very, very meticulous. And at the same time, we'll we'll bring some folks together. Again, we don't want to do a large public event. That will be streamed, of course, through different platforms so people can watch it. And then we're also going to have presenters from citywide performing troops that we have so that it'll be focusing on the particular city council district. In this particular case, District A, but then with other voices, and we've got 16 Westapalava chapters that will all be participating, and of course, folks can also sign up to be part of the open mic or testimonios, not just poetry, prose, etc. It could be someone standing up and 
actually right now what you're saying is fascinating we'd love to hear other people that want to talk about how their experience as perhaps indigenous is different than the experience of chicanas chicanos etc latinx because that really is uh that really is a rich experience. So how does all this help your accounting life? <laughs> it, <laughs> it helps me to don't kill myself, right? <laughs> I love that. No. <laughs> uh, it really helps me to get out of the, oh, this is how it is, you know, because numbers accounting is, is a formula, you know, so you don't do things creative or anything. I have actually have a joke for... Uh, for tax preparators, I say, do you think account, um, tax preparation or the tax law is uh, some? It's a it's an art or it's a science? And then if they say it's an art, then I'm like, oh, okay, so you create your own numbers, so you're cheating on your taxes. <laughs> and if they say it's science, then okay, so you follow the rules. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what I say. You don't want to get creative on your taxes, right? Right. <laughs> so my poetry is where I. When I, when I do that, when I get creative, when I, I get my mind out of the, the, the law, you know, the, the square world of accounting. <laughs> so it helps me a lot. It, it's pretty cool because then you've got, like you said, you've got the words that can open up definitions, but the numbers should be concrete uh, or are more concrete. And it's kind of like two different facets that you can you can navigate. And people, you, you, people will open doors based on which one you need at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is very cool. Well, we've been chatting with Maria Segari, who is the new Nuestra Palabra Community Representative for City Council A. She is organizing a fantastic event as part of our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month. It's scheduled for Wednesday, September 30th. 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. There'll be a remote component and then a live component. You can see the full lineup at nuestrapalabra.org and we'll also be talking about it more on the radio show. There's probably an accountant out there. They may have their doubts about getting involved, listening to poetry, uh -huh. or they may doubt that it has anything practical to offer them. <laughs> and they're like, I'm not even going to go in person or remotely. <laughs> what would you say to encourage them to open up their poetic heart? Well, I think they should try it. I know people that it's like, oh, I'm not good at it. I've never done it, blah, blah, blah. And once you, you teach them a little bit how to express themselves, oh, my God, they keep on going and going and going. Because it's a, it. <laughs> it's a good thing. Poetry is feelings. It's feelings in a, in a beautiful way. You're saying it in a beautiful way. So we all have feelings. So, so <laughs> you should be able to write something. And I think the deeper the feelings are, the better the poetry gets. So I, I would encourage them to, to try it. Give it a try. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time and energy. It's great to be working with you. Gracias. Oh, thank you very much. Magazines, newspapers, cable television, the internet, all sources of news and information, and all cost money. KPFT costs money too, but unlike those other news sources, you get to decide whether you want to help pay for it and how much to contribute. It's unusual in the age of big corporate media to have a quality source of news and information that's paid for voluntarily. But that's one more way KPFT gives you more than you might expect. We can do it thanks to listeners who contribute their voluntary support every year. Please join them. Call 713 5 or go to kpft.org. Again, you can make your gift at kpft.org or call 713-526-5738. That's 713-526-KPFT. Call now. This is commercial-free, listener-sponsored Pacifica Radio. KPFT, Houston.